The attack on your capital one year later. President Biden slams his predecessor. The president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. We'll hear from Attorney General Merrick Garland. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. And a stark warning on what could lie ahead. Oh my God, this is the path the United States is going down. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports from Washington. It's Friday, January 7th. Donald Trump was president, people say he lied all the time. Not so. On September 24, 2020, he came into the White House briefing room and refused to commit to a peaceful and honorable transfer of power if he lost. Here's the full exchange. Here today for a peaceful transfer of power after the election. There has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit uh, to making no, sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, The ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. So asked directly if he would commit to a peaceful and honorable transfer of power, he refused. And that was the truth. And that voter fraud he kept talking about, there was no fraud, of course. I'll get to that in a moment. So Trump, on the losing end of a nasty election, could not bring himself to do the right thing for a country that's tearing itself apart. The right thing was to respect the results of a free and fair election, arguably the fairest and most transparent election ever, but he couldn't or wouldn't. This denial led to January 6th. One year later, to the very day President Biden stood in the Capitol Rotunda, the very heart of the Capitol, and said that American democracy and the rule of law will be defended. He called out Trump's lies and challenged those who continue to believe them. No election, no election in American history has been more closely scrutinized or more carefully counted. Every legal challenge questioning the results. And every court in this country that could have been made, was made, and was rejected, often rejected by Republican-appointed judges, including judges appointed by the former president himself, from state courts to the United States Supreme Court. Recounts were undertaken in state after state. Georgia, Georgia counted its results three times with one recount by hand. Phony partisan audits were undertaken long after the election in several states. None changed the results. 
And in some of them, the irony is the margin of victory actually grew slightly. So let's speak plainly about what happened in 2020. Even before the first ballot was cast, the former president was preemptively sowing doubt about the election results. <clears throat> he built his lie over months. Wasn't based on any facts. He was just looking for an excuse, a pretext to cover for the truth. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes in a full and free and fair election. There is simply zero proof the election results are inaccurate. In fact, in every venue where evidence had to be produced, an oath to tell the truth had to be taken, the former president failed to make his case. Since that's the key point here, it bears repeating. State officials, many of them Republicans, said there was no fraud. Court ruling after court ruling, including Republican judges, all said there was no voter fraud. Even the Supreme Court, with three new Trump-appointed judges, rejected his claims. The former president and his supporters have never been able to explain how they accept as accurate the other election results that took place on November 3rd. The elections for governor, United States Senate, House of Representatives. Elections which they closed the gap in the House. They challenged none of that. The president's name was first. Then we went down the line. Governors, senators, House of Representatives. Somehow those results are accurate on the same ballot. But the presidential race was flawed. And on the same ballot, the same day, cast by the same voters, the only difference, the former president didn't lose those races. He just lost the one that was his own. Fair point, as is the final point he made, this one aimed at the people who attacked police officers and ransacked the Capitol. The president says anyone who calls that patriotism is fooling themselves. Is that what you thought when you looked at the mob ransacking the Capitol, destroying property, literally defecating in the hallways, rifling through the deaths of senators and representatives? hunting down members of Congress. Patriots? Not my view. To me, the true patriots were the more than 150 Americans who peacefully expressed their vote at the ballot box. The election workers who protected the integrity of the vote. And the heroes who defended this capital. You can't love your country only when you win. You can't obey the law only when it's convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Powerful words from President Biden, but the question, what happens now and where do we go from here? One thing is that arrests and prosecutions of the January 6th mob 
will continue. In the past year, more than 700 people from 45 states have been charged with a variety of crimes. About a tenth have received actual prison sentences. The longest sentence so far has gone to Robert Scott Palmer of Florida, 63 months in the slammer. Meanwhile, Attorney General Merrick Garland says the investigation is far from over. Actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. Because January 6 was an unprecedented attack on the seat of our democracy, we understand that there is broad public interest in our investigation. We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. Our answer is, and will continue to be, the same answer we would give to, with respect to any ongoing investigation as long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done consistent with the facts and the law. And he added this. Over 40 years ago, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, the Justice Department concluded that the best way to ensure the department's independence, integrity, and fair application of our laws, and therefore the best way to ensure the health of our democracy, is to have a set of norms to govern our work. The central norm is that in our criminal investigations, there cannot be different rules depending on one's political party or affiliation. There cannot be different rules for friends and foes. And there cannot be different rules for the powerful and the powerless. There is only one rule. We follow the facts and enforce the law in a way that respects the Constitution and protects civil liberties. We conduct every investigated investigation guided by the same norms, and we adhere to those norms even when, and especially when, the circumstances we face are not normal. And the January 6th commission, meanwhile, continues its work, and that could include criminal charges against officials from the former Trump administration, possibly, possibly including the former president himself. Look for things to speed up in the weeks ahead. Coming up, you'll hear from a professor and CIA consultant who studies civil wars around the world. She'll tell us whether we could have one. Latest now on the pandemic, COVID cases are exploding nationwide, more than a million on Monday alone, though that number 
fell later in the week. NBC reports that at least 33 states have set records the first week of this year. Other COVID bullet points, businesses are pulling back again, airlines canceling or delaying thousands of flights. Some schools are switching back to online learning. There are still big shortages of test kits and reports of price gouging. And Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, blames the unvaccinated who are swamping the state's hospitals. He says 75% of COVID patients in Maryland are unvaccinated. On the job front, 199,000 jobs added to the economy in December. The total for the year, nearly 6.5 million. The unemployment rate down to 3.9%. A year ago, it was 6.7%. Wages for the year have risen 4.7%, the government says, but that's not enough to keep up with the current rate of inflation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. a scary question. Is the United States headed for civil war? Sounds ludicrous, right? But one of the country's top experts on civil wars has studied more than 200 of them around the world and says not only could it happen here, but we're much closer to one than people think. Here now my interview of the week with Barbara Walter. Barbara Walter is a political science professor at the University of California at San Diego. She serves on something called uh, the CIA's Political Instability Task Force. And what that does is it monitors countries around the world and predicts which of them are most at risk of deteriorating into violence. And unfortunately, according to uh, Barbara, at least, the United States is now one of those countries that uh, is at risk, again, of deteriorating into violence. Uh, Barbara, welcome. Now, I do I do want to kind of uh, add this uh, caveat that uh, on your own, not as part of any U.S. government effort, you applied the same uh, methodologies and analytical me- methods to what's going on here that you do elsewhere. Is that right? 
That's correct. And it's very important to emphasize the CIA is not legally not allowed to investigate um, the United States or U.S. citizens. It, its mission is externally focused. And its mission was really to try to figure out what countries were likely to unravel um, so that the United States government could be prepared for that and potentially take measures um, either to shore up that government or do it at whatever the U.S. government felt was in the U.S.'s best interest. And I've served on that task force since 2017. Um, and we have a, a really good predictive model. And um, the model's been around for many years. Um, the model was developed by a team of academics and data analysts um, and experts on civil war and political violence. And the way they put together the model was they sat around a room and they brainstormed about what are all the things that we know are potential risk factors for civil war? What were their hunches? Um, you know, if you were to sit down and think what could potentially um, cause citizens to turn on each other, what could that be? And at first they, they gravitated towards what seemed to be the most obvious, poverty, economic inequality, um, potentially, you know, does a country have a lot of immigrants who are heavily discriminated against, things like that. And none of those ended up being really important. And instead, yeah. the two factors that came up as being the two best predictors of political violence and instability were first, something that experts we call anocracy. And I'll explain in a second what that means. And the second is whether uh, a society begins to break down into ethnic, religious, or um, racial factions. Um, and those factions really, you could think of them almost as political parties. And if one of those factions then seeks political power with the goal of excluding everybody else. Now, again, we did not develop this model with the United States in mind at all. This is what we, we began to see when we were looking at Southeast Asia and Africa and Latin America and um, Central Asia and countries like Yugoslavia. Um, and we never talked about the United States. We would not be allowed to talk about the United States. But over the last five years, as I've, or the last, yeah, the last four years, as I've been sitting in that room, and we're talking about these other countries, and we're talking about anocracy, and we're talking about ethnic factualism, it was impossible not to think, oh, my God, this is the path the United States is going down. And let me explain, anocracy is just a fancy term for partial democracy. Anocracy is a type of government that is neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. It's something in between. And the United States um, has been declining as a democracy since 2016 and in January of this year for the very first time, the data set that categorizes countries as democracies, anocracies, or autocracies, that data set for the very first time categorized the United States as an anocracy. It's amazing that we're even having this conversation. Yeah. I mean, it would be just uh, just beyond uh, the imagination yes. of four or five years ago, and yet here we are in, uh, well, almost 2022, yes. and we're talking about this, and it's really just uh, frightening. And you know, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, people say this all the time, Barbara, but uh, this is certainly not the country that I grew up in. And 
not yours, not uh, not any. How did it happen uh, so fast? I mean, you mentioned uh, only since 2016. That's really only you know five years ago. Is it all because of Trump or were the sort of pre-existing conditions and he was simply the accelerant? I mean, what happened? Yeah, no, this preceded Trump. In fact, you could tell this whole story without Trump. If Trump hadn't emerged, somebody like Trump would have emerged. Um, so there's another thing that we know. We actually know by because there we have studied civil wars in other countries over so many years, and there have been so many civil wars. There's been over 200 major civil wars since uh, 1946. Um, one of the things we know is who tends to start these wars. Um, and again, people have this impression, this false impression, that it's the most downtrodden who tend to start wars. It's the, the poorest people in a society. It's the, it's the people who are most discriminated against. If you happen to have large groups of immigrants who are sort of ghettoized in areas, they tend to start it. And the reality is that's not true. Um, the people who tend to start civil wars, experts call sons of the soil. I know that sounds like a biker group, but it's not. Sons of the soil are, um, are citizens who had either been dominant in political power and were now in decline, or who had once had political power and had lost it. They're the group in society who believe that they um, that the country is theirs, that, um, that they have a right to be in political power. And when they lose it, they find this incredibly disconcerting. They're very resentful of groups that are ascendant. And um, they're the ones who tend to mobilize and fight to, write, to try to reestablish control. It's clear who you're talking about here. And in your answer, I kept thinking about the uh, sons of the soil. I kept thinking about those marchers in Charlottesville in 2017, uh, that's exactly the kind of people that you're talking about. I suppose uh, demographically, if you look at that, uh, you know, this used to be sort of a white Christian nation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Whites now are down to uh, about half of all uh, births yeah. in some states. In fact, they are a minority, uh, what they call what a majority minority yeah. of births. Yeah. So uh, in your analysis. You go through a couple of phrases here and uh, explain these for a listener and a reader. If you, I think they're yeah. self-explanatory, but uh, pre-insurgency is the first phase. What is pre-insurgency? So I didn't make up that term. One of the interesting things is that um, the CIA has a manual. It's uh, available publicly online. If you Google CIA insurgency manual, um, you'll find it. There's some elements of it that are redacted, but most of it is there. Um, and again, you know, one of the, the, the things that the CIA has done over the years is, is they have studied countries outside the United States. They're trying to uh, identify those countries that could potentially have what they're calling an insurgency. Um, and this could be um, low level, but sustained violence um, against the government. And, um, and so they put together this manual and it laid out what they had seen across the globe um, uh, happening in the early um, years of an insurgency. And they broke it down into three stages. And they said, basically, 
all insurgencies go through this very similar life cycle. There's a pre-insurgency phase. There's, <clears throat> I think they call it a conflict um Incipient um, conflict. In, incipient right. conflict. And then there's an open insurgency phase. Uh, what's going to happen in the next year, two, three years? I mean, how does this play out? So, yes, we are closer to a civil war, but we're, no, we are not closer to the type of civil war that most people are thinking about. I think one of the reasons why Americans are shocked by this news, and one of the reasons why if it does happen, Americans will be unprepared for it is because they're thinking about the old type of 19th century civil war when they hear that term. So they're thinking about the, Amer the first American civil war. They think it's gonna look like two enormous armies meeting each other on the battlefield. Both sides are gonna be wearing uniforms. They're gonna be dragging cannons. It's gonna be very obvious and very organized and it's gonna be contained on these large battlefields. And the reality is 21st century civil wars are not like that. The new type of civil war tends to be much more decentralized. It tends to be fought by multiple different factions, militias, paramilitary groups. Sometimes they work together and they're coordinated and sometimes they're not. And their preferred method of violence is terror and sometimes guerrilla warfare. They are not planning to meet the US military in a conventional war. They're gonna lose that war um, and they understand that. So they're pursuing what's called leaderless resistance, which is a type of cell warfare um, and sustained terror. Now, now what is the goal of groups like this, paramilitary groups and white supremacist groups, people like that, uh, what, what do they want? Well, they right now they're they're not coordinated um, in their in their goals. So if you were to look at the Boogaloo Boys, and they've really only emerged in, in less than two years, um, they're they're a conglomerate of different groups. Some of them. Um, you know, have maybe specified goals and some of them really, they just wanna create chaos. It's kind of all over the place. They haven't quite um, gotten their message straight and they haven't quite coordinated. But the, the two biggest types of um, militias that we're seeing, and most of them are on the far right, are either anti-government, anti-federal government or white supremacist. And they, there's actually, um, there's overlap there. Um, and so if you were to talk to uh, white supremacists, they know they're not gonna create, um, you know, a white America. That ship has sailed. Um, even if they completely halted immigration, the United States is still gonna be a, a white minority nation, probably by about, 2045, just because the birth rate is majority non-white. Um, so they know at the federal level, level they're not going to create um, a, white, uh, a white America, but they could potentially do that at the state level where you have um, white ethno states, where they use terror, for example, um, to target um, synagogues and black churches. Um, so if you, have, if you have a state like Michigan, for example, where most minorities are concentrated in the city and most whites are in the countryside, um, you could imagine um, 
a campaign of terror designed to intimidate non-whites and convince them that Michigan really isn't a state that they want to live in. Um, and in that way, create an ethnically homogenous state, which they then could control at the state level. So that would be one of the goals. Sobering stuff. My thanks to Barbara Walter. Her new book, by the way, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, is now out. In a minute, we'll open up the History Vault. First, though, let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Time now to open up the West Wing Report's archives and see what made history this week in the past. 1789, 13 years after the United States was born, it held its first presidential election. As expected, voters, white men who owned property only could vote, selected George Washington, who was sworn in on April 30th. 1802, Thomas Jefferson's Danbury letter. This was one of the most important letters ever written by a president. Jefferson said that the First Amendment to the Constitution created what he called a wall of separation between church and state. And 1863, the most important executive order ever issued by a president, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Want more history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your 2022 event? By the way, I do that, too. Current events, economics, analysis, history. I connect the dots, and I'd love to hear from you. Speaking of books, by the way, I'll send you one, any book you want, your choice, if you download my new app. It's called West Wing Reports, available in the Apple and Android stores. All you have to do is download it on your phone or tablet. There's a button called What's on Your Mind. All you do is push, talk, and send. That's it. And the question I have for you, how do you rate President Biden's performance so far? He's been in office nearly a year now. How do you think he's doing? Leave a comment and your name goes into a drawing for any of my books. I like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful this week, particularly on the anniversary of the Capitol attack. It comes from Lyndon Johnson, our 36th president. He said, yesterday is not ours to recover, but tomorrow is ours to win or lose. Think about it. That's all for this week. Here's my 
email again, pbrand is at evergreenpodcasts.com. Special thanks to C-SPAN and Professor Barbara Walter. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, the multi-talented Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis in Washington. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.